and welcome to Sip Sip Hooray, the podcast for people who love wine and want to know more about the interesting people who make it. On today's show, one of the best-known winemakers in the Santa Cruz Mountains, AVA. Jeffrey Patterson has been making world-class wine at Mount Eden Vineyards since 1981. It's been a family affair for the Pattersons. Today, Jeffrey's son and daughter both work with him at the family-owned winery. And we are happy to have Jeffrey join us today to tell us more about the magic of Mount Eden. We are the two Marys who like to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm Mary Babbitt. And I'm Mary Orland. Let me set the scene for you. We are in Saratoga at the Mount Eden Vineyards with Jeffrey. We are sitting in his living room. Jeffrey lives here. He works here. This is where, if you're lucky enough to get a reservation to come taste, you will be amazed by the views. We are 2,000 feet above Silicon Valley with almost panoramic views of the Santa Cruz Mountains, the bay below us, and all the way across to the mountains on the eastern side of the San Francisco Bay. Getting here is an adventure. You go up a very twisty, windy road that isn't fully paved all the way to the top. But when you get here, it is truly Eden. Mount Eden is the most historic vineyard here in the Santa Cruz Mountains wine appellation. Um, Jeffrey has been a big part of that for the past 40 years. We are just delighted to have you, Jeffrey, join us. Welcome to Sip Sip Hooray. We can't wait to hear your stories and get to know you better. Yes, thanks for being with us today, Jeffrey. Thank you, Mary Mary. (laughs) (laughs) You can't go wrong there. It's pretty easy to remember. But yeah, Mary Orlin is correct in saying this is just a spectacular place to be sitting and getting a chance to visit with you. So why don't we start with... I always like to back it up and have you tell us how you got interested in wine and what led you to this life. I was living in uh, Berkeley, California, and I just graduated from college at at Cal. And I moved into a house where, you know, in those days, kind kind of a cooperative house, you might call it. And one of the things that uh, they did at this house was give dinner parties. And I was invited, and uh, they would pour interesting wines, you know, that came from a specific place. And it dawned on me that, you know, wine is something that was, number one, it was delicious, um, but it was also something that I could learn about and study and, you know, collect and... Uh, it just one thing led to another, to another, to another. And I started working in restaurants at that time um, as a server and uh, doing other odd jobs around town to kind of make a living. And then uh, a couple of years later, I said to myself, well, Jeffrey, you know, what are you going to do? You know, I mean, you're not going to do what, you'd been, what you've been doing for the rest of your life. You love wine. What aspect of wine, you know, appeals the most? And I said to myself, well, I like to live in the country. I like to work with my hands. I'm kind of practical. Um, I have a degree in biology. Winemaking. Winemaking. You know, versus wine marketing, versus other aspects of wine that I could have tried. 
So I said, huh. So I went back to school at UC Davis to uh, take all their courses uh, pertaining to winemaking and viticulture and got out of that program in uh, the summer of 81 and went on the job market. Interviewed about half a dozen different wineries and they hired me here uh, in August of 81, right, right before the harvest. This was your first winery job? My first winery job. Oh my goodness. Your first and only. First and only. Wow, that's incredible. I've never worked in a, a, another winery in my life. That's really... Very unusual. Very. Most, most winemakers you talk to will have worked at at least a half a dozen different places before they kind of settle down mm -hmm. to where they really want to, you know, commit to. to, commit to. So, yeah, so um, I, I was newly married at that time, uh, just a year into my, my, my marriage, and we, we both moved here in this little cabin just down below the, the main house and um, settled in, started learning the craft of winemaking and worked the 81 harvest with my boss, Fred Peterson, and our kind of consulting winemaker, Dick Graff. Uh, Dick Graff is the, the, the found, founding winemaker of Shalom. And then I worked the... the, the the, the year between 81, 82, and again, learning what to do slowly, but it was a very humble job. It was, you know, I would do whatever was asked of me and, you know, from topping barrels, doing lab work, hoeing weeds, pruning vines, doing whatever needed to be done. And then I went through the 82 harvest, my second harvest, with the same crew, Fred and Dick, and then... In December of 82, uh, my boss, Fred, who hired me, decided to go to Healdsburg and take a new job uh, doing a, a different project. And that opened the position up. And then my wife um, campaigned uh, on my behalf to uh, hire me as the, as, as the general manager of winemaker and her as the business manager. And the board uh, thought about it and thought about it, and they eventually did. So I was only I was only here for 15 months, in total, before I, they promoted me to the general manager winemaker job. That's quite a leap. Which is which is a pretty unusual for this business. Sure. You know. And they also got two for you know two for one basically you and your wife two, <laughs> right. two people to work for them. Yeah, she was she was running all the sales and accounting, and I was doing all the production. And so we, we started going at it, you know, a little, little daunting, but... Um, uh, and you are what, 23, 24 at this time? No, I was, um, in 82, I was 30. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was born in 52. Um, and um, so that, that was, in a way, an, an extremely pivotal point in my life um, because... Again, most winemakers, you know, they move from winery to winery in, early in their careers until they find something that they really feel that is, uh, you know, their, their, their home. Mm -hmm. And I did it right away. I, I, I didn't move around at all, um, for better or worse. I just didn't. <laughs> I'll say for better. That's yeah. wonderful. So this felt like home to you immediately or within those first 15 months or so? Well, I, I felt that I, I had a little bit of experience, not much, but some. 
Um, and I had this degree in science, so I, I kind of knew chemistry a little bit. And that was that, that was beneficial. Um, but yeah, it was it was. I always tell people that is what um, really started my my life here at Mount Eden. You know that the fact that I was now in charge. The company was very small in those days, mm-hmm. um, very different than it is today. Uh, the amount of acreage that we had was much smaller in those days, um, but it was good. I I always felt number one, you know, you know, I loved really great wine. I, I wasn't interested in just making a lot of wine, but I was interested in making really profound, age-worthy, interesting, collectible wine. That was my goal. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the goal of a lot of young men or women that enter the profession. But it's not easy to achieve because you have to be at the right place. And I was fortunate, even though the company was in kind of disarray, uh, in the 70s, when we first started, you know, there was a lot of turnover among the winemaking staff. So um, I felt that if I really worked hard and committed to the vineyards, to the wine cellar, to the style, to consistency, that we would be successful. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 was, it, it worked. It worked. Were there a lot of mistakes early on? Was it baptism by yeah. fire? Well, in the early years, you know, like starting in 83, where I was in charge of the actual um, process, you know, the decisions about harvest dates, fermentation techniques, you know, barrel time, all those decisions you make as a winemaker. I, um, I wanted to be careful. So I was, a little, I was a little more conservative than I am today. Now I'm a little more relaxed, a little more, um, you know, I, I know what's going to happen. So I don't, I don't sweat it too much. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, everyone makes mistakes, you know. <laughs> you know, yeah. I made a few. Um, and obviously, none fatal because you're still here and it worked, <laughs> and you're making. I mean, nothing that, you've been making nothing fabulous. That get, nothing that would get me fired. <laughs> you know, yeah. So, take us back a little bit to the founding of this winery and yeah. th- what the roots are of yeah. Mount Eden. So uh, it's kind of a long story, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to make it as brief as I can. So there's this man named Martin Ray. Martin Ray grew up in Saratoga. And while he was growing up, he met Palmasan as a kid. Palmasan was this very large man with a strong French accent who was making wine at this property in the Saratoga Mountains, just next door to us. Um, made a, quite an impression on Martin. Martin grows up, goes away to college, comes back to the Bay Area, becomes a stockbroker. And um, in 1936, he has some kind of a mental breakdown. I don't know if it was physical or mental or what, but it was, you know, uh, medicine in those days was, was not like it is today. No one really knows, but he was, re- he was recovering from his illness, and he decides in one epiphany to go into the wine business and uh, to buy Palmasan from Paul. At that time, in 1936, Prohibition had just ended, and Paul decided to sell his property. His only heir 
was not competent enough to really take on, uh, take on the property, the, the business, so he decides to sell. And in walks Martin Ray, in, you know, as a middle-aged 30-something-year-old ex-stockbroker. And uh, during the negotiations, Paul says to Martin, I think you should um, uh, not buy my, my winery. Instead, you should go next door here, where we are now, and start your own winery and build your own vineyards and make your own wine. And at that time, Martin was, you know, he had no experience whatsoever in, in winemaking. He's obviously a wine drinker, but not a winemaker. But that thought never left his mind. So Martin moves ahead. He buys Palmasan in 1936, starts making varietal wines, which I know it sounds naive today, but, you know, putting the name of the grape variety on the label was almost unheard of. Nobody, nobody did it. In really? Those, in that time, everything was labeled Chablis, Sauternes, you know, Rhineland, <laughs> Burgundy, Claret. Nothing was named after the variety of the grape. Interesting. Martin Ray wanted to make a statement, and he would bottle like Pinot Noir, 100% Pinot Noir, and put Pinot Noir on the label. Kind of unusual. Um, and then in 1942, it's the war years, World War II, Martin gets a bid from Seagram's, the big whiskey house up in Canada, to buy Palmasan. And Martin says, hmm, I'm going to do it. You have to understand, you know, California wine, in the, at, that, at that time, in, after Prohibition ended, was in the worst of shape. The vineyards, the wine cellars, the market, the prices, everything was depressed. And... Um, Martin Ray being Martin Ray, he's, he sold it. To, he, he, only, he, he, he had only owned Masson for six years, but he sold it, and he moved next door, just like Paul suggested. In 1943, he starts planting, of all things, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir from cuttings taken from the old Paul Masson vineyard right next door to us. Um, and makes his first wines. Uh, he makes uh, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, uh, a table wine. He also makes sparkling wine. Uh, he makes a little bit of Cabernet from purchased fruit, but not from his own vineyards until the 50s. But uh, the fact that he put his eggs in that basket of the Burgundian varieties, which, again, it sounds kind of hard to believe, but in, in that time, nobody did that. Nobody, you know, based their production on Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. But Paul was a Burgundian, he was an immigrant from France. He, he wasn't from a winemaking family, but he was from a winemaking region in France, the, the Burgundy region of France, which Chardonnay and Pinot are, are the only really serious white and red grapes that they grow. Um, and, and also, he comes here. And you have to, again, you know, imagine the, the era that he was in when the Santa Clara Valley below us was all agricultural. Mm-hmm. Everything was farms. Not the Silicon little, Valley. There was, a, there was a little downtown in San Jose, mm -hmm. but everything else, all the other towns, were these little small towns with a little main street, and everybody was in the farming business. It, the, he could have easily taken the proceeds from the sale of Palmasan and bought 100 acres of flat ground 
in the valley and planted a vineyard sure. and made wine and called it Martin Ray, but he mm -hmm. didn't. He came here at great expense and great effort, plowing his way up the mountain, you know, building the road that came up here. That's a legit mountain, too. That, as we yeah. mentioned in the beginning, that road is yeah. not for the faint just, of heart. You just can't imagine what effort and yeah. expense it must have taken to get all the equipment up here to plant the vines. And Yeah. I mean, again, all the things we take for granted, like tractors and, you know, deep wells mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, electricity, <laughs> uh, <laughs> all these things that, that we... We think of as being, you know, very commonplace. And at that time, coming here, he, he started with nothing. Yeah. You know, he, he had he had to do everything, mm. build every every aspect of the operation. But he did. He did. I never met the man. Uh, he died before I came here. But um, still, I, I look back. I always kind of look back in awe at his fervent belief instilled in him by this Frenchman, Paul Masson, to come to this exact place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If it, wasn't, if it wasn't for Paul, the idea probably never would have surfaced. And if it wasn't for Martin's dogged determination to do it, it wouldn't have started either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Martin Ray um, starts a wine business. Um, he's known for being kind of difficult you know, as a personality. Uh, he makes very small amounts, but they're very profound style, big, robust, you know, intense wines, not elegant, as you might think, more uh, individual style, I call, I'll call it, and very high prices. Mar Martin Ray was so unabashed. He would charge first growth Grand Cru prices for his wine. Wow. Isn't there a quote um, that circulates that he he would charge prices for his wines that would make Napa blush or something like mm -hmm. that? Well, he'd base his pricing, like for his Chardonnay and Pinot, on what the, the Grand Cru's cost. Was he able to sell them? I think so. So people bought I mean, them. People believed in... The, he, he continued on in, in business. I don't, mm -hmm. I'm not sure how successful he was, but... Mm -hmm. And he, he would charge, and for his Cabernet Sauvignons, he would charge first gross prices. So he would use, he would use the pricing of the great French wines, the the very famous, you know, the top, top tier uh, French wines as a model. Sure. For his pricing structure. Well, he clearly believed in what he was doing up here. Yeah, and he made some profound wines. He made some wines that were absolutely uncommercial. Still charge a lot of money for them. Oh, really? But he, but he was he was uh, he was uh, he was adamant that everything he made, you know, had to be super 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 expensive. Wow. So you might say Martin, even though he's kind of an obscure figure in California wine history, he was kind of the first cult winemaker mm. in the business. Mm -hmm. You know, doing that kind of thing, which is fairly famous now. You know, especially in Napa, but oh. really unheard of in, in, in his era. Well, he not only, you know, paved the road or not, he made the road up this mountain, but he kind of paved the way for California's future in winemaking. He campaigned his whole life for um, varietal labeling because until 1982, believe it or not, the, the uh, federal laws allowed you to blend 49% of another grape 
of a maybe an inferior grape into your Chardonnay. Mm, and still call it Chardonnay. And still call it Chardonnay. Wow. Huh. Now it's yeah. it's it, it's a seventy five percent. And now basically the the market is so sophisticated now compared to where it used to be that if you want to make uh, a serious Chardonnay, it's always going to be Chardonnay. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a given. It's 100% Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pinot Noir, the same. Cabernet, not so much, because Cabernet needs to be blended in many cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what happened, Martin? So fast forward to the 1960s. Uh, Martin's first wife passed away of, uh, I think it was lung cancer, and he, 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 he uh, quickly remarries an old... Uh, kind of college uh, friend, um, Eleanor. And um, he, he has this, this crazy idea of um, taking on investors, partners, and building them a house such as the one that we're in now. Right here at the vineyard? A little, a little down below. Okay. Uh, this is the peak of the, of the mountain, a little bit down below. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, planting a vineyard, and um, kind of creating, I think, kind of a, a model that Domaine de la Ramoni Conti has of where they have five separate vineyards, and each one is labeled and, you know, made from that single vineyard, mm-hmm. you know, Ramoni Saint-Vivant, Latache, Echezo, Grand Echezo, you name it. Um, that was his dream. And, but he was, at this point, Martin Ray was getting a little senile, I think, and um, he was really hard to get along with and really dogmatic. And these investors, these wealthy wine lovers, got tired of it <laughs> really fast. Mm. So by the end of the 60s, the whole thing fell apart, ended up in court. Oh, okay. Wow. And that, you know, kind of wrangled its way in the in the courtroom for a while, and then the eventual decision was that Martin Ray should pay these investors back, you know, make them whole. Martin Ray couldn't do it. Was he penniless? Well, I think his reputation by that time is, was so tarnished that he wasn't able to raise the money, so the investors basically took it over. Mm. Wow. They, they renamed it 50 years ago. Mount Eden Vineyards. So it was originally Martin Ray. It was, it was Martin Ray from the mid-40s until 1970. I think it was, that was the last full harvest from the vineyards, from the estate vineyards, uh, under the Martin Ray label. 71 was in turmoil. A little bit of wine was made, but not much. And then in 72, it was the first full vintage under the, the current ownership, which is the Mount Eden Vineyards. And then the 70s, again, as I said before, they were kind of a tumultuous decade with uh, winemakers coming and going uh, and uh, not a lot of investment that was desperately needed uh, that didn't happen. So, you know, you might say I kind of came into the picture in the early 80s and kind of steadied things, you know. I, I, you know, I kind of gave it, gave it some consistency and of style uh, and... Um, quality mm-hmm. um and yeah i i always felt that you know tasting the wines in the library when i first got here knowing what you know good wine tastes like because i used i used to sell 
wine in Berkeley at a small wine store, um, specialized in collectible wine. Um, I, uh, I knew it had the potential of making really, really profound wine, and, but it needed somebody to be here, mm-hmm. you know, year after year after year after year. Yeah. Wow, what an so, interesting so I, story. So I, Golly. Uh, I did it. That's what I did. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, you know, I'd love to hear more about how you set about fixing the problems that needed to be fixed, you know, establishing the quality standards that you have now. Right. right. Are so they still thing, the same um, uh, grape rootstocks and things Is it that uh, Martin Ray was using? So probably the, the most impactful thing was I, I replanted all the vineyards. Okay. So, so none of the original vineyards that were are the heart and soul of our vineyards at that time when I first started are here anymore. They've all been replanted. And they were, they were antiquated. They were old. Um, they were very, very low yielding. So the economics were not good. And, um, you know, the way they were done with this training system was very unusual and hard to control. So, you know, kind of setting about planting the vineyards. Did you use the same budwood? I've used the the uh, the same budwood over the years from the original vineyard, so that that has been a constant. Okay. Um, uh, so so replanting the vineyards was probably the the biggest singular task. It took a long time. It took it took decades mm. uh, because I, I didn't want to disrupt the the production too strongly, and I didn't want to disrupt the quality because, as we all know, old wines make more interesting wines. So I, I didn't want to upset the quality, you know, in a very you know, abrupt way. So I did it very methodically and slowly. We built uh, a new cellar. The, the original cellar, which is below us here in the living room, was all there was in the beginning. And we kind of outgrew that over time. We built that facility down below. You saw halfway up the mountain. Mm-hmm. It's a cave that was blasted into the mountain. That, that was built in 1991, so about 10 years after I arrived. Um, that was a big game changer. It gave us a lot more uh, space uh, for aging the wines. Uh, took a lot of the pressure away from this original cellar here, which was okay, but it wasn't, it wasn't big enough. And then in 2007, we purchased uh, another winery, it was a, the former Cinnabar, and we renamed it Domain Eden and uh, took over the vineyards and the winery, not, not the brand, but just the vineyards and the winery, and started a, uh, another label called Domain Eden. So we have now uh, Mount Eden Vineyards, which is the estate wines from the original site that Martin Ray started, and Domain Eden, which is just about two miles away from here as the crow flies. Yeah. Your wines are so well known in this area and frankly around the world. But if you were to describe your style mm-hmm. to someone who didn't know your wines, how would you describe your style? It's kind of like um, the old world and specifically France, because these are uh, the three grapes that we grow Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Cabernet are all French. So the. Um, the 
the the standard the, the world standard are, are are French wines from these grape varieties, but so it, it has a little bit of uh, the old world character um, structure, uh, acidity, length of finish, um, not necessarily fruit driven, more soil driven. That's kind of a difficult concept for a lot of people, but that, that's how I describe it. It's, what do you mean by soil-driven, then? The, the flavors are more, um, instead of being from orchard fruit, they're, they're more uh, herbs and minerals and kind of uh, nuances of um, earth rather than fruit. You know, a lot of California wines, you know, and I love them, uh, are really devoted to fruit, you know, all kinds of fruit, <laughs> whatever it may be. Mountain wines have fruit, so, so they have a uh, they have a a California personality. We, we are in California, by the way, <laughs> um, and um, but it's kind of a hybrid between California sunshine and earth-driven French terroir characters. And it's not that I'm trying to make that. And I know that sounds kind of incredulous, but it's not that I'm trying to get that style. I pick the grapes, I ferment them, I put them in barrels, I bottle them. I mean, I do everything that, you're supposed to, that you have to do to make wine. The wine turns out like it does. And it's not that I'm a Francophile, I am somewhat, but um, I'm not trying to make French wines, but there's a style that is inherent in the grapes that are grown here on this mountaintop that makes the wine what it is. It's, 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 I know it sounds kind of, kind of almost too simple, <laughs> but, but it is. It's the it mag magic of Mount Eden, as yeah. Mary Babbitt said. Yeah. So you've been very kind to pour us a beautiful Chardonnay. Let's talk about your Chardonnays. This is a 2012 and talk about how what you just said shows up in this glass. And we had we were talking just before we started taping the pod about the ageability of the wine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Given a good cellar, so when I pick Chardonnay, estate Chardonnay, I have this um, this kind of um, image in my mind of having a, a wine that has kind of leanness. Good acidity, a low pH, uh, and a wine that is not very forthcoming in its youth. I know it sounds kind of weird, but I want the wine to be a little reticent, okay, a little quiet, mm -hmm. just like people sometimes, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I want the wine to be um, not showy. I like it to be showy when it's old. Interesting. But when it's mm -hmm. young, when it's young, I want the wine to be somewhat, somewhat uh, balanced, good acidity, strong, full of potential, but not showy. Not not not. Mm -hmm. If if I make a vintage and I've done this, that's from the very get go, very rich, full, and you know, very. 
big. Yeah, big personality. Exuberant. Mm-hmm. exuberant. Mm-hmm. They don't age. Interesting. They don't age. They don't age like I want them to. Okay. Yeah. And I want I want the wines to age. Mm-hmm. So well, this 2012 so, is gorgeous. So so one way of, of of achieving that is when I harvest. So okay. I have to harvest very carefully um, when the grapes are ripe, but in no way overripe. Mm-hmm. You know, so they still have a lot of tension. The wines have a lot of tension in their youth. Uh, the pH again, the pH is low. And the wine ages very slowly. Well, the the acidity is just beautiful. Yeah. The, the minerality's there. Yeah. The um, fruit, is a, you know, a little bit of lemon. There's some creaminess to it, like a lemon curd almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it's got this. It just fills your mouth with this complex flavor profile of fruit, of minerality, yeah. acid, and then a nice long lingering finish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's it's, what I want. Yeah. And weird. that's, I mean. You know, that's, that's just, you know, what happens here. And, but I have to be very careful that I don't let the grapes get overripe. I mean, yeah. I, I guess that's the one thing that I do in terms of a, of a winemaker and trying to achieve a certain styles. I have to make sure that the grapes are not overripe when we pick them. Are you finding you're picking earlier and earlier because of the yeah. warming temperatures? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the weather is definitely changing. Mm-hmm. It's gotten warmer. Mm-hmm. Um, the winters have gotten warmer. The bud break is earlier. The harvests are earlier. Everything has gotten earlier. We're pretty much almost done. You know, it's not even the middle, or it's, it's the middle of October. So everything is changing for sure. Just when you thought you had this thing wired, you've been up here a while. Yeah. Mother Nature goes and gives you a twist. Yeah. <laughs> Warming climate. Yeah. Hey, one of the things we mentioned at the very beginning is that your, um, this is a, been a family thing. You talked about your wife uh, running the business part right. of the winery. I don't uh-huh. know if she still does or if that was in the beginning, but yeah, she, she still does. She uh-huh. still does. Terrific. Yeah. And yeah. then your two children are also involved. They're yeah, adults I'm very, now. I'm very blessed. We only have two children and they both work for the winery. Um, my daughter does more of the uh, hospitality, um, more, more marketing side of the business, uh, a little bit of accounting, a little bit of bookkeeping work. And my son does more production work, kind of more as, a, as the, a general manager. We have a winemaker, assistant winemaker who does a lot of the winemaking tasks. Um, so, but he kind of kind of hovers, you know, around and kind of makes sure things are going, things are, you know, the, the operation is is is, is going well. Uh-huh. So he's he's kind of does what I've been doing for the last forty years. But you know, he's thirty years old and he needs to be in charge. <laughs> are you ready for him to be in charge? Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And his style is different than mine, but, mm-hmm. you know, I have to, you know, give him some, some rope. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think about how many people have this dream or fantasy of owning a winery yeah. and maybe living at the vineyard and yeah. making it, you know, like the French houses where it's a family affair and right. you've actually done it. Yeah. And I mean, imagine that it's really incredible yeah and truly to be sitting here in your living room we've got this wraparound deck with um lovely tables and this incredible view over the whole valley and people sit out here and taste wine and i'm sure you and your family enjoy it but you also allow your wine visitors to come out onto your deck in right in front of your living room and taste wine i mean it's truly integrated into your home yeah but that's a program that we started a couple of years ago. And 
it's it's worked very well. It's lovely. You know, people like it, you know. And before we were open, but we weren't advertising that we were open at all. You know, we would say you have to make an appointment, but we weren't tr we, we weren't. But there was no outreach to bring people here to taste. And now it's working. It's working well. I mean, I'm I'm glad we're doing it because um, it's kind of the nature of the market nowadays. You know, you, I think you you know a lot of wineries that used to be closed are now open. It's true, but we're we're among them. I mean, but like as I said, this is a world class winery, and your wines are just um, so uh, they're they're so highly valued right. and so sought after. Exactly, and yet it, you run it this mom and pop sort of vibe, and it's so nice. Yeah. It's it's so um, yeah. just relaxed, and it just yeah. makes people feel at ease. But I'm curious. So you live here, you work here. You're either in the vineyards, in the winery. Your family's in the business. How do you get away from wine? Because you are up here. It's it's a little bit of a trek to get down the mountain. Yeah. And yeah. so what do you do to clear? Go clear your head. Um, take a break and step but, away from wine. Yeah. <laughs> well, I like to cook. Ah. Uh, cooking for me is is a, a way to relax. Mm -hmm. I know it sounds kind of weird, but... No, I, I totally get but it. I, I, love, I love to cook. Um, it's very relaxing for me. Uh, I like to give dinner parties, you know, and mm -hmm. cook nice food and drink nice wines. Um, I, I hear I you. I do a lot of reading. Um, you know, I'm blessed that I have found in my working life something that I really enjoy. Mm -hmm. And I really feel very fortunate that I found something like that, you know, it's kind of rare, I think, mm -hmm. not rare, but it's, it's rarer there's, than it should be. There's a lot of people who are not happy with their current yeah. career yeah. job. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I've, uh, so I've always kind of been very grateful that I found something that I like, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, it was a, in my late 20s, it was a dream, and it's become a reality. So yeah. I, I feel, and I still feel that way. I st even though I've been doing it for such a long time, I still feel that this is the only life I could ever imagine. So you are really living the dream. Yeah, so yeah. lucky. Yeah, yeah, kind of am. Yeah. I hear you are a member of not just one but three cookbook clubs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what kind of stuff do you like to cook? And tell me about your club the, stuff. The cookbook clubs that I that I work that I, I'm involved in uh, are we. Generally, we're all food lovers, and we, we uh, um, have the host uh, pick a cookbook that they want to pull from, and so we all get the cookbook, and we make up a menu, and we get together and eat it, and we kind of, it, it, it's good because it pushes you uh, to cook out of a different book that you would not normally have used you know so it, it expands your horizons do you have a favorite or two of cookbooks that you just adore that, that would never leave your kitchen mm, i like richard olney i like judy rogers i like alice waters oh i was going to ask Jeremiah you my tower when you were living in berkeley yeah were you did you know alice waters being in the wine world and her food stuff i feel like there's kind of some synchronicity there was was it early days for her I worked, I worked at a, a very unusual wine store it's called uh, Wine Taster Imports. Uh -huh. And this very eccentric uh, man who uh, immigrated from Hungary to London, became a veterinarian, 
moved to California, always in love with wine. And he was he had this a very unusual store. It was only open on Saturdays in the afternoon. And he had all these beautiful wines that he imported directly himself. So the prices were very nice. So it was kind of an underground secret, you know, this place, wine taster imports. Uh, and you had to get there on Sunday afternoon, or Saturday afternoon, because he was only open for about three or four hours. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a great way for me to learn about wine, because it was all these beautiful mm-hmm. wines, and they were, you know, they were obtainable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is before wine became outrageously expensive, mm-hmm. yes. which it is mm-hmm. today. Uh, this was kind of right before it took off, you know, in the late, in the mid-70s. Um, so, yeah. So was Alice Waters on the scene then? Yeah. And did you know her? Sh- did you started in 1971. Mm-hmm. And but being a lover of food and wine, I imagine you, you went there. Oh, yeah. It was, it's funny, in those days, not today, but in those days, there, there weren't many other options. <laughs> you oh, know? If you wanted yeah. to eat... In that style, right? There was only one place. Mm-hmm. Now there are countless places mm-hmm. that you know have taken their inspiration from that kind of you know farm to table yeah, concept. Yeah. You know, just everywhere, or, or, you know, on 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 all across the United States. Um, but uh, it was yeah, interesting time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, when you're not doing something for one of your cookbook clubs, what do you like to cook at home? Oh boy, yeah, Pretty like simply, you know, I, I eat. Pretty, I, I don't, I don't cook fancy. From, do you know. have a specialty? Would your kids say, "Oh, Dad's whatever paella or something"? It's a specialty. Uh, I'm always asking my kids, "What's my I specialty?" Like, I like to make my own <laughs> pastas. I like, you know, mm-hmm. from scratch. Ooh, nice. I have, a, I have a roller, and I do that quite a bit. Huh? Mm-hmm. Nothing, nothing. I, I like to cook, you know, very simply, unless I put a, a on a dinner party, and then I'll, I'll kind of unleash whatever restrictions I have and go for it. Just go yeah. for it, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you've been here 40 years uh-huh. or so. Yeah. What, how has the wine scene in the Santa Cruz Mountains changed mm-hmm. in terms of the people, the wineries, the styles of wine. Yeah. The Santa Cruz Mountains is a vast, vast Appalachian. It's as big as Napa in terms of square miles. Um, but it's so little planted, as you know. Um, the, the restrictions are no flat land, <laughs> um, no water, uh, the proximity to expensive real estate mm-hmm. makes land very expensive. Sure. Um, so those are the major roadblocks. Okay. To planting vineyards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Steepness, water, money. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure the expenses have shot up. The water availability has <laughs> gone down. Yeah. But in terms of the people who are here making wine, uh-huh. how has have you seen that evolved? And yeah, is it a lot more crowded? Years? A lot of wineries have their own vineyards, but they don't make everything from their own vineyards. A few of them do, but most of them 
supplement their production from grapes outside of the Appalachian. Um, we're interesting in that all the vineyards are all by themselves. You know, if you were to fly an airplane over the Santa Cruz Mountain Appalachian, mm -hmm. you would see these little pockets here, you know, surrounded by forest. So just by that situate that 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 you know what, what it is the the wines have a, a strong terroir character mm -hmm. because they're not um adjacent to other vineyards they're all by themselves so that's kind of fun yeah, yeah. You, know, it's you don't have to you don't have to do anything yeah. i hadn't heard it explained like that i, I like that that's well if i was in um monterey county mm -hmm. You know, in the Salinas Valley, you know, in the Santa Lucia Highlands, where there's one vineyard after the other, after the other, after the other, it's a little different. You know, right. if you're trying to create some kind of uniqueness in your wine, you know, versus the other, the other, the vineyard from the wine from the next vineyard over, mm -hmm. it's more difficult because they're all one big, one big swath. Mm -hmm. But in the Santa Cruz Mountains, nobody, because of the nature of the of the topography. Everybody's separated by miles and miles and miles of forest. Different elevation. Different elevation, <laughs> different aspects to the sun. We have, uh, so we're a coastal mountain range. So we have the, the ocean side, uh, which is very, very sparsely planted. A um, few vineyards, but not a whole lot because it's so, the, the, the flowering is so chancy. Oh, yeah, sure. That, you know, you got to be able to accept no grapes. Mm -hmm. A year where the flowers open and the weather is cold and wet and there's nothing to harvest. They just you never get around to it. You have yeah. to accept that. Exactly. It's just part and of, you the, shatter of where and you are. And few people can absorb it, can, can accept that. So mm -hmm. most of the vineyards um, are on the inland side, as we are. Um, and... Um, so, but we are a coastal mountain range. We are at elevation. It's the Appalachian is based on elevation, which is I think unique in America. Right. Mm -hmm. um, not based on other parameters, which are basically soil or geographic or you know watersheds or th those kinds of things. It's based on elevation. Mm -hmm. So w w we have to be above the fog in the morning. Um, yeah. Well, it's, it's not a wine. It, it's not an appellation that has a really um, kind of marquee winery. Like like Napa has a lot of marquee wineries mm -hmm. and lots of them. Um, Santa Cruz Mountains has Mount Eden and Ridge mm -hmm. and a couple others like Reese, um, but not a lot of mark a lot of wineries that are known across the country, you know, mm -hmm. among you know, in the kind of the, the wine world. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of wineries, about 75 in our association, but not, not a lot that are distributed all across the country. Right. In all, in all major markets. So that makes it um, the average wine consumer 
doesn't really know where we are, or, you know, much about us. I know, and even though you guys have been doing this for years, it still feels a little bit like the Wild West, and it's so, yeah. it's a funny thing about the Santa Cruz Mountains, yeah. but you certainly have been, managed to make a name for yourself here. Yeah. Hey, yeah. before we get any further, I wanted to ask, we have another wine in the glass now, and I wasn't, sh- I, I didn't think it was possible to get better than that Chardonnay, but darn you did it with mm. this Pinot Noir. It's really good. It's a 2011 Mount Eden Estate yeah. uh, Pinot Noir. Mm. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, people hear 2011 and think, oh, that was not a good vintage, but, you know, ooh, ooh, I, this is absolutely gorgeous. 2011 was a difficult year, um, especially for Napa. Um, it was a very cool spring. And a lot of Vineyard managers um, took the leaves, the the first and second leaves, off of the shoots to allow their um, their sprays to have more penetration and more effectiveness. And then it, it turned hot, mm-hmm. and the vines, the grapes didn't like it. And then the, it was a late harvest. Um, very cool, late. It was a cool year overall, but it was a very late harvest also. So it was a challenging year uh, for a lot of people. Um, I quite like the vintage. I think it's. <laughs> I think it's. Uh, it's delicious. It's um, you know it's, it's aging very well. It's, it's doing what I think it should do. It's beautiful. It was it was a small harvest because that cool spring led to very uh, small success. In the bloom, in the, oh, in, sure. in the flowering, you know, in the flowering period, uh, for in the wine world or for the winemakers or for grape growers, is so critical. It's not a very long period; it's only like two weeks or so. But when the flowering occurs, the weather is so critical. I know you're like no wind, no rain. Way, <laughs> yeah, way more critical than, than no, any no, other any other period in the in the in the cycle. No extreme temperatures. Mm-hmm. No extreme temperatures, especially no cold temperatures. Yeah. No rain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, rain and cold lead to an unsuccessful bloom. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. But, yeah, um, no, yeah, I is, like it. I like this it. is beautiful. It's very fresh. Yeah. And it's, what, 11 years old now? And the florals are just, yeah. the violets are still yeah. so beautiful. Yeah, wow. it's, it's, it's about 10 years away from optimum, optimum drinking. Oh, really? Really? Mm. Gosh, I, it's, it tastes yeah. optimum to me right now. Yes. Well, with Pinot Noir, the, the, the one thing that I love about Pinot Noir is when it gets really old, and if it's, really, if it's, a, if it's a really good wine, and it's aged well, when it gets old, it has all these miraculous, you know, nuances of flavors of jasmine, soft ripened cheese, mm. mushrooms, you know, cherries, wild strawberries, all these beautiful aromas mm-hmm. that you fall in love with. Right. You you just can't get enough mm-hmm. of. Yeah, it's so interesting. But you gotta give it time. Okay. You all gotta right. give it so time. Ten yeah. more years on this one. All right. We'll come back <laughs> in ten years and taste. <laughs> well you know, I've been talking about how uh your wine has such a good reputation. And um, I wondered if you might tell us the royal connection uh, oh, yeah. to Mount Eden Vineyards. Yeah. And, uh, so <laughs> so when, when Megan and Harry um, uh, somehow up to the lead up of their wedding, they said, we're going to choose one wine from the new world, one wine from the old world. They didn't give any other hints. 
And um, so nobody knew, you know, and it wasn't publicized. So it wasn't like you guys sent in, oh, everybody send in wine, so they'll they choose my wine. You didn't oh, okay. have to submit a bid or something for samples for tasting or anything. So, no. Oh. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, they were, they were very quiet hmm. and they were just like normal people, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. having a wedding. They bought some wine for their wedding. Yeah. Um, so a week after the wedding in the London Times, a reporter listed all the food and the wines or the, the two wines, you know, just all the, you know, mm -hmm. what the, what the, the wedding dinner was about. Sure. We learned that our uh, 2014 Domain Eden, not the estate, but the Domain Eden Pinot was the New World wine. And they chose a white burgundy from um, a negociant, uh, Olivier Lefleve. Oh, yes. Not the Lefleve, but Olivier Lefleve. Okay. And it was a, I forget what the wine was, but it was a white burgundy. So it was a white and a red. And the phones just didn't stop ringing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and did you have any idea before that article came out? No we clue. called our London importer. Mm -hmm. We said, what's with this? And he said, you know, we got this order for nine cases, and it went to some address in London, but it wasn't a royal... It wasn't Buckingham it, it, it Palace? Wasn't, it wasn't Buckingham Palace. <laughs> it wasn't Windsor Castle. Yeah, yeah. It was just an address in London. So we, wow. we thought, well, that's kind of a lot of wine, and one wine, but, you know, so what? Oh, my goodness. They had no idea either. That had to be such a kick for you. It was. That's so was. fun. And we wrote Megan a letter saying thank you. And, Aww. You know. Nice. Her secretary wrote us back. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. You have a royal wine. Yeah, exactly. Good yeah. enough for royalty. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, a, it was a big surprise. It was a big, and, and a very happy one. Mm -hmm. So yeah. is there, so that must have just done incredible things for the demand of that wine. Yeah. And and that label too. It it gave that label a kick for sure, a, a definite kick. Yeah. The, the domain series um, is not as singular as our state. Our state wines only come from this this one mountain. Mm -hmm. No no place else. When I make the domain wines, like the Chardonnay, for instance. Mm -hmm. It's, it's all the Chardonnay that we grow at the Domain property and a little bit from here. So it's always a blend, 60-40, 70-30, 80-20, somewhere along those lines. So mm -hmm. it's not, so it's, it's from both mountains. But it allows me to declassify Chardonnay from here that I don't feel is what I want to make my, because I, I want the estate wine to be long-lived and, mm -hmm. and just what I want. So it, it, it gives me a nice tool to, to declassify. Mm -hmm. Same thing with the Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. Same thing with our Cabernets. So I, I, can, I can declassify anything I want from my estate vineyards at Mount Eden into the domain wine. So that's one thing. And also it allows me to work with other people, uh, friends of mine, typically wealthy men that have these vineyards that want to have their wine made into, you know, their own wine made. So I, I, um, I take their grapes and I make their wine and I give them some of it. And I, give, I take a lot of it and put it in my own blend. So mm -hmm. all the domain wines, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Cabernet are from not just 
the domain property there from the Santa Cruz Mountains. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and specifically Mount Eden, Domain Eden, Saratoga, Los Gatos. Gotcha. You okay. Know? Yeah. Well, gosh, Jeffrey, it has been such a pleasure talking to you. I cannot believe we're almost out of time here. I feel like I could just sit and visit exactly. and look at the view and I drink know. great wine all day. But <laughs> I, I've thoroughly, great. excuse me, I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. And I thank, thank you, you so much for sharing your story and your wines with yeah. us. And just, you know, all the contributions you've made to not just the Santa Cruz Mountains wine world, but the entire wine world. It's just, you know, I'm sure you hear so many accolades, but... You're just, and you're just like, you know, so easygoing and yeah. humble about it. Just like Santa Cruz Mountains. Low key. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. How, you know, here in the, uh, the Santa Clara Valley, your wines are widely available. Uh -huh. But what about people who live elsewhere? How do they find you? Well, there isn't much of it to begin with. Mm. So you can't, um, I don't really know. You know I guess your website. You, um you know, uh, I don't really know where the wines are located, you know, because they could be anywhere. But we do have a, a fairly active uh, website and, and, and a marketplace that you can go online uh, and order uh, from that, and it can be shipped to your door. So that's, in terms of convenience, that's the best, that's mm -hmm. the easiest. Um, and that's, you know, it's it's... It's a big part of our business. Yeah, I bet. It, I'm sure. You know, the, the beauty of the internet is, you know, it's never never shuts down, and um, you can live in a very remote place and still get it. You know, if you have FedEx or UPS, you know. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you so much for spending sure. this time with us. Thank you, thank you Mary. We are so... Um, it's been a pleasure to be here. Um, I've been fortunate enough to have been up here a few times with you in the yeah. past and yeah. taste some beautiful wines then it's just but this is exciting and um we're so happy to have our Cipere listeners get to know you great thank you so thank you and cheers jeffrey Cip cheers jeffrey Cipere. thank you Well, that's going to do it for our show today. We're so glad you found Sip Sip Hooray podcast. We thank you for listening. And we really encourage you to share our podcast with your friends. So go to whatever podcast platform you listen to our pod on and be sure to rate us or review us. It helps other people find our podcast too. And be sure to subscribe to the pod so you don't miss another episode. But there's plenty of episodes we've got on our website from past interviews that you won't want to miss. So visit sipsipparaypodcast.com. And we're also, of course, on social media. You can find us at Sip Sip Hooray Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas for future podcasts or great finds you want to share with us, just DM us and we'll get back to you. Thank you for listening. I'm Mary Babbitt. Cheers and Sip Sip Hooray. Cheers to you, Mary Orland. Sip Sip Hooray. <laughs>